Thank you so much for the music of the morning, both congregationally and uh, and uh, special music. Appreciate that very, very much. Call your attention, if I may please, to Romans chapter 13. For those of you who are not usually with us, we're preaching through the book of Romans, and we have been in chapter 7. We're skipping chapter 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, and we'll preach out of 13 today. Those are hard chapters. You just don't understand how hard those are, so we're not going to... No, I'm kidding. What we'll do is this is a special message for a special day, and uh, we'll get back to our exposition on chapter 8 in the next two weeks, I guess. Brother Bill will be here next Sunday, but I'll be preaching. Dr. Bill Third will preach next Sunday, but the following Sunday we'll get to Romans 8, and we'll keep up our journey through uh, preaching through the book of Romans. But this morning, just one verse of Scripture, and uh, this verse has gotten on my mind for weeks past, and, uh, and when I was thinking a message for today, and this being the 23rd anniversary of the New Life Baptist Church, this verse came to mind. It's in chapter 13 of Romans, and it's one verse of Scripture. We'll get all the context when we come to it to preach expositionally, but for now, it carries the subject matter to which I address to you this morning. Romans 13, verse 11, Paul wrote, he said, And that, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. Romans 13, 11, And that, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. Um, Brother Jim Wimenauer got an ideal of a burden for a phrase, and uh, he mentioned it to me, and just two, three days before, and I settled on the text for the morning message, and Brother Jim gave me the text from Matthew chapter 13 and verse number 25, but while men slept, his enemies, I think is the text in Matthew, his enemies came, and the obvious indication is they came and sowed tares and destroyed and did all the evil things, but while men slept. This message this morning is a message simply entitled, and and uh, when I think of a text, I usually get a title. I don't know why titles help me do a better job of formulating the whole ser- sermon, and in this particular case, the title seemed to fit well for us for this day. Still standing, but are we standing still? Still standing, but are we standing still? You say today we celebrate 23 years as the New Life Baptist Church, an independent Baptist church. We are a Christian by conversion. We are a Baptist by conviction. And we believe that's important because we, as Baptists, stand for things and certain things that other folks do not. And we make no bones about that that we are glad to be an independent Baptist church, fully established, founded, formed on God's Word. Interesting to me that this church being formed in 1981 has not moved from its original anchor points, and its doctrinal statement gives testimony to that. There have been no amendments to our doctrinal statement over the 23 years. How we started, we have continued. And we maintain that we shall continue still. Because we here at the New Life Baptist Church hold that the doctrines of God's Word, that those things we are to teach, contrary to the modern, philosophical, friendly seeker kind of church that the world is trying to produce, there is no teaching unless there is doctrine. 
The very word means that. And for these people to think that doctrine divides, uh, just simply don't have it up here. They're a brick short of a load. You can't teach the scriptures without teaching doctrine. That's, a, that's an oxymoron to think that you can. And so the fact is, God's people need to be grounded in His Word, which is to be grounded in His doctrine. And that is revealed in His Holy Word. Consequently, what's important too is, is having been here at the New Life Baptist Church for what next year will be my 20th year. The church is 23 years old. I will have been with you 20 years next year. And I can tell you, either as associate or pastor in both capacities of which we've served here, that I can tell you firsthand the tenacity with which we hold on to what we believe around here. Getting a New Life Baptist Church to change would be just the same thing as it was when I was in the Presbyterian Church. Whatever the Presbyterians started out doing, they always did. And so it's an old saying among the Presbyterians, you better do it right the first time because they'll do it for 150 years. Well, that's the way we feel about doctrine. That's the way we feel about what we believe and what it is that we stand for. When so many around us are giving up or giving in to one thing or some things they once said they'd die for. They no longer die for them. They simply shelve them. They change them. And I say to you that change is not always bad if it helps us to walk closer and more faithfully to the Lord. But some of these things have a tendency to open the door to some things that drag us down and pull us away from our original moorings. And for that, we must be absolutely unequivocally careful. Also, the New Life Baptist Church still stands for what we call the fundamentals of the faith. Those are those supreme doctrines that rise to the surface of which we as a church have taught and preached for the 23 years that I've known about the church both the 20 I've been here or about and the three years before that when I've gone through the records. I have read literally every record of the New Life Baptist Church, all the clerk reports, everything that you ever recorded is history. I have read every word of it. And I have seen where the church has come from and I have seen what the church believed and I have seen the attitude they took about holding the ropes even when it was more popular to do otherwise. The New Life Baptist Church still stands for the sanctity of human life, from the babies that are in the cradle room to the elderly of our auditorium people and for everybody in between. The New Life Baptist Church still stands for the sanctity of marriage as defined in God's Word as between one man and one woman and that for a lifetime. We have not changed that. The New Life Baptist Church still stands for the responsibility to the faith which was once delivered to the saints. We believe we are to contend for it. Yes, that means fight for it. We believe we are to defend it. That means explain it. And we believe we are to extend it. That means spread it. To defend it, to defend it, to contend for it, and to extend it is a major part of our mission statement here at the New Life Baptist Church. Even though that position of spreading it is politically incorrect now, we still maintain it's what we were told to do in the given of the Great Commission. And to be honest with you, uh, we have this still standing thing down pretty good. My concern is not in the still standing part. We're doing all right there. We can do better with everything we do, but we're doing pretty good at still standing. My concern, and I share it with you this morning as a pastor who loves the church, my concern is are we standing still? That's my concern. I'm not too concerned about still standing. We are, and I'm confident of that as pastor of this church and 
sitting on all the board meetings and hearing the discussions of our men and hearing the Sunday school teachers teach and all the varied ministries and outreach that we do, I'm confident we're still standing and we're doing a good job of that. We just aren't doing a great job of moving from our moorings concerning the responsibilities that we've been given. Problem is we're standing still in some areas where we need to move forward. And this morning is an opportunity as a pastor to speak to you from a way and in a way that I don't normally do. Since I preach from the book of Romans and we preach expositionally, I don't get to say these things very often to you. And I believe the day gives me and affords me that opportunity. So I want you to listen with your heart as well as your head. I have carefully put together what I believe is an important message for this, our 23rd year anniversary. And I believe that it's important that we take it to heart, that we take it home, and then we do something about it. Not just hear it, but be a doer of it. This text came to me weeks ago here from Romans chapter number 13 and verse 11. And as I was batting it around in my head and in my heart, I came to a very strong conclusion. And that is that the great evil of our churches, and not just ours, but many of our churches in our community here, and the, the church in, especially in this present time, in this present age, that our greatest evil is that we are saved we are saved, and yet we are really asleep to the great responsibility that we have been given in our relationship to Jesus Christ. We have simply gone to sleep on it. And I say this to you, the basic question or idea about what is sleep will help you understand what I'm saying about it in a spiritual way. And that is that sleep is a period of unconsciousness. It's when the whole mental and physical part of who you are goes idle and inactive. It's that time when you are partially unclothed. That is, you put on pajamas or something or a gown and you get into bed and if an enemy comes to the front door, you're not quite ready for that confrontation. And so there's not only the idleness and the inactivity, but there's also a sense in which we're unprepared. And I say to you that it's also true that in or during sleep, time is passing without the recognition of that fact. When you sleep, you have no idea how the clock is moving. You have no idea what the wristwatch is saying because time is passing by without your awareness of it. And I say to you, time slips through our hands here at the New Life Baptist Church like water in the hands of a statue in a public square where the stone or the iron is unconscious of the outflowing of the water that's passing. Passing us by. You see, I'm aware of that because as a pastor of the church, I, uh, I meet and greet people who, when I first arrived here, were babies. And young people and kids. And some of them will be married this year. I'm telling you, time is passing by. It's not standing still. It's not where we can take a break and say, well, let's, we'll get serious about this thing in time. I guess I come to you with a message like this this morning to say to you, there's no time now for you to take a break. There's only time now for you to do whatever you're going to do that's going to count for Christ the moment after you're dead. And I'm trying to get you to do it now so that a minute after you're dead, you will be so glad you did it and didn't wait any longer to attempt it. So whatever great, great dreams you've dreamed of spiritually, you better do them now. Whatever great hopes you have of things to accomplish before God calls you out, you better do it now. 
because I'm telling you, time is passing by. I stand here this morning keenly aware that there are many people in this room, in this auditorium, that are not out-and-out violators of God's laws. They do not scheme at night to how they can somehow trip God up or they can disobey His Word and they can live their life their way. That's not what happens. But I'll tell you that there are people in this room who have never yet awakened to the full sense of responsibility they have to their faith in Jesus Christ. They're just not doing anything about it. They've got this idea we can drift from the same time we trust Christ as Savior. We can just drift into the presence of God in heaven someday. Beloved, I'm telling you, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us very clearly that there is something more to Christian living than just saying, I'm a Christian. A great many churches across this great land of ours is standing still because they're filled with sleeping saints. And our city, for one, can't afford that. The city of Franklin, Indiana, needs the New Life Baptist Church at its full strength. With every single one of its members, to the youngest who know Christ as Savior, to the oldest, taking a stand for Jesus Christ and making it clear they're not just standing still, but they're reaching out and they're doing what they can to impact the city. I ask you a simple question, and you need to be absolutely, eternally, biblically honest about it. In light of your position or relationship to the New Life Baptist Church and to the Lord of glory, are you a sleeping saint? Are you a sleeping saint? You see, sleeping has a, a context within it that has a danger to it. How many times I've read of stories in newspapers concerning someone who went to sleep one night, thought everything would be hunky-dory the next day, and died in their sleep because a fire broke out. Lack of awareness. The fire or smoke detector did not go off. It did not sound an alarm. They inhaled enough smoke. They died of asphyxiation. You see, it happens not only in churches. It happens to individual lives, and it's happening to our country. Here's a letter that was sent to uh, me or communicated to me by... Uh, What's uh, Brother Joe Marcello, who is a captain in the United States Air Force. Joe is still so, uh, serving in uh, Bosnia right now. He won't be home till December. This, of course, is uh, our son Stephen's wife's father, uh, Erica Marcello. This is her father. And he sent me a copy of a speech that a, a captain in the Navy, Captain Uinet is his name. He's an executive officer at the Naval Air Station in Pensacola, Florida. And this is a moving speech. I don't know that I'd give you all of it, but it was given in June of 2004. He entitled the speech, America Needs to Wake Up. That's what we think. He starts out, we heard on the 11th of October or September 2001 when more than 3,000 Americans were killed. And maybe it was, but I think it should have been, quote, get out of bed. In fact, I think the alarm clock had been buzzing since 1979. And we have continued to hit the snooze button and roll over for a few more minutes of peaceful sleep since then. It was a cool fall day in November of 1979 in a country going through a religious and political upheaval when a group of Iranian students attacked and seized the American embassy in Tehran. This seizure was an outright attack on the United States American soil. It was an attack that held the world's most powerful country hostage and paralyzed the presidency. The attack on this sovereign U.S. embassy set the stage for the events to follow for the next 23 years. America was still reeling from aftermath of Vietnam experience and had a serious threat from the Soviet Union when then-President Carter had to do something. 
He chose to conduct a clandestine raid in the desert. The ill-fated mission ended in ruin, but stood as a symbol of America's inability to deal with terrorism. Since the end of the Vietnam War, a poorly trained, poorly equipped, and poorly organized military was called on to execute a complex mission that was doomed from the get-go. Shortly after the Tehran experience, America began to be kidnapped and killed throughout the Middle East. America could do little to protect her citizens living and working abroad. The attacks against U.S. soil continued. In April of 1983, a large vehicle packed with high explosives was driven into the U.S. Embassy compound in Beirut, Lebanon. When it exploded, it killed 63 people. The alarm went off again, and America hit the snooze button once more. Then just six months, short months later, a large truck, heavily laden, down with 2,500 pounds of TNT, smashed through the main gate of the U.S. Marine Corps headquarters in Beirut, and 241 U.S. servicemen were killed. America mourns her dead and hits the snooze button again. Two months later, December 83, another truck loaded with explosives is driven into the U.S. Embassy in Kuwait, and America continues her slumber. The following year, in September 1984, another van was driven into the gates of the U.S. Embassy in Beirut, Lebanon, and America slept. Soon, the terrorism spread to Europe. In April of 85, a bomb, a bomb explodes in a restaurant frequented by U.S. soldiers in Madrid. Then in August, a Volkswagen loaded with explosives was driven into the main gate of U.S. Air Force Base in Rhein-Main. Twenty-two are killed. The snooze alarm is buzzing louder and louder as the U.S. interests are continually attacked. Fifty-nine days later, a cruise ship in the Achille Laurel is hijacked. We watched an American in a wheelchair singled out of the passengers of the list because he was Jew, and he was executed. The terrorists then shifted their tactics to bombing civilian airlines when they bombed TWA Flight 840 in April of 86, killed four, and the most tragic bombing, Pan Am Flight 103 over Lockerbie, Scotland, in 88, killing 259. Clinton treated these terror acts as crimes, as crimes. In fact, we're still trying to bring these people to trial. These, my friends, are acts of war. The wake-up alarm is getting louder and louder, and the terrorists decide to bring the fight to America. In January of 1993, two CIA agents are shot and killed as they entered their headquarters in Langley, Virginia. The following month, February of 1993, a group of terrorists arrested after a rented van packed with explosives is driven into an underground parking garage of the World Trade Center in New York. Six people are killed, over a thousand are injured, and still this is a crime and not an act of war. The snooze alarm is depressed again. Then in November of 95, a car bomb explodes U.S. military complex in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, killing seven servicemen and a woman. A few months later, in June of 96, another truck bomb explodes only 35 yards from the U.S. military compound in Saudi Arabia. It destroys the Kabar Towers and the U.S. Force, uh, Air Force barracks, killing 19 and injuring over 500. The terrorists are getting braver and smarter as they see that America does not respond decisively. They moved to the coordinate to the attacks and the simultaneous attacks to two U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania. These attacks were planned with precision. They killed 224. America responded with cruise missiles, uh, cruise missile attacks, and goes back to sleep. And it goes on and on and on. And if you add up all the people that have died in this little bitty speech that this captain in the U.S. Navy gave, You'd see the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who died because our country 
is doing exactly what our churches are doing. And the New Life Baptist Church is not exempt. We know the seriousness of the circumstances and we see what people are doing against us and which is wrong and undermining and all that. We understand the problem. What we don't understand is that we've become part of it. We've gone to sleep at the post. We act as if coming to church takes care of all the problems and that we are responsible for as individual believers. We somehow think that coming to church and sitting in a pew is comfortable and air-conditioned in the summer and heated in the winter is all there is to living the Christian life. Forgive me, but some of you in this auditorium have never given a tract to anybody, invited anybody to church, never told anybody that Christ died for their sins, and never told a single one that it's appointed unto man once to die. My beloved, if that's not going to sleep at the post, I don't know what is, because he didn't leave us here to enjoy this. He left us here to serve him. And he gave us a commission. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And that wasn't by accident. That was by divine design because uh, we're supposed to be, as Romans 1, 16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone believeth the Jew first and also the Greek. What he was saying is, you won't get into heaven without embracing, believing, and taking the gospel as full value. And what we're doing is we somehow got this idea and we're going to sleep with this idea that you come to church, you sit, you enjoy, you talk to your friends, you socialize, you get up, you leave, you go to work, you do your thing, you come back Wednesday, you get back and do whatever we do here on Wednesday night, then you leave on Wednesday evening, you get up Thursday morning and Friday, go to your work and Saturday's your day and Sunday, it's free and you don't have to do anything and everything's okay and we're having a great time. There's only one problem. He who left us here is going to look at us and say... What in the world were you thinking? World going to hell and, and you are just thinking it's a good time party kind of thing? Come on, give me a break here. And I say to you, my friend, the question is for you, it's for me, it's for all of us. Have we gone to sleep? Are we the sleeping saints? Let me ask you a question. This points it a little bit closer to home and plows closer to your corn. It simply is this. How much of our church is standing still is your responsibility. How much of our failure as a church in standing still is your responsibility? And by the way, if you happen to be a member of another church, that's a fair question for you to ask about your fellowship. It's a fair question. What part of the success of the New Life Baptist Church should you give credit for? But equally... What part of our failure in standing still is your responsibility? Believe me, as a pastor of the church, I face it often. I face it every time we come to a, a highlight day, 23-year day. I face it every time I come to a service and our attendance is not good. I face it every time we give an invitation and someone doesn't walk the aisle and get saved or join the church or the waters of baptism doesn't get stirred. I face it all the time. Part of the hardest jobs hardest job in pastoring is seeing all your failures. All that we could do, all that we should do, but aren't. The possibilities, the vision that we have that we somehow can't get on track. Oh, I don't take solace in failure, but I tell you, I do take heart in the fact that we're not alone in our battle. You don't know him. He died many years ago in the 1800s, but his name was A.T. Pearson. A.T. Pearson was a man who uh, was preaching in America and uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon who was pastoring then at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London 
he heard about A.T. Pearson and heard what good preaching he did. And so uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon got sick. And when Charles Haddon Spurgeon got sick, he contacted A.T. Pearson, Arthur Tappan Pearson, as they called him. And they said, Arthur, would you come and preach at the, at the tabernacle for me while I take a leave of absence? And A.T. Pearson said, yes, I would. I'd be glad to do that. Charles, if you want me to come, I'll be glad to come and preach at the great Metropolitan Tabernacle. They were running thousands of people in those services. And so A.T. Pearson came to London, and as he got there, he took over the pulpit ministries for Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Preached great sermons. One of the books in my library that I recommend to young preachers is his book, A.T. Pearson, All the Sermons from Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. What great preaching. What sermons he preached. And what the killer is, he's Presbyterian, preaching in a Baptist church. I can tell you that he was good for the church, and I can tell you the church was good for him because after he had been there two years, listen to me, after he had been there two years, he was baptized by immersion. That's the kind of effect Baptists ought to have on Presbyterians. Get those guys immersed. And so Pearson was immersed. And then it was that Charles Haddon Spurgeon died. And A.T. Pearson was voted in as the pastor of the great Metropolitan Tabernacle. He preached two years for those people as their pastor. And many of the sermons he preached, you can feel the heartbeat of this man, the burden he had for the work, and the heart he had for them as individuals. I took a copy out of one, actually it's two pages, out of one of the sermons he preached. It's applicable to us. I want you to listen to it. It's dated, and I know that, but it says up to date as our last breath. He says, We've just been celebrating the centenary of the wonderful era of modern missions that was inaugurated by William Carey's offering of himself back in 1793 as the first English missionary to India. The greatest obstacle that Carey met with during the ten years that he was seeking to awaken interest in foreign missions was found not, was found not in the open and flagrant iniquities of his brethren of his Baptist denomination, but in the dead sleep in the dead sleep in which the whole churches were abiding, rocked in the cradle of their indulgences, swung in the hammock of ease, one end of which was fastened to the cross of Christ and the other to mammon, fanned in a delicious slumber amid the intoxicating odors of this world. He found it almost impossible to arouse even his brethren in this ministry to the fact that a thousand millions of human beings had never heard the gospel of Christ, that the missionary of the cross had never gone forth into the major part of the regions beyond to carry the gospel to the dying. And was he not told even by one of his Baptist brethren to, quote, sit down, and if God wanted to convert the nations, he could do it without his help? It almost seemed as if that famous rebuke of John Ryland belongs to the myths of the past ages. So impossible does it seem to us in these days ever to have been an historical fact. But let us not suppose that the period of sleep in the church lie away back in the past centuries. This very day in January of 1893, the vast proportion of the nominal church of God lies in the slumber of an apathy and the sloth of indifference. 
There is no design to be offensive to Christ's disciples in this great congregation to which I speak. When I say that after preaching here the major part of an entire year, it is quite plain to me that even here the large portion of its members give little evidence of doing any actual systematic work for Jesus Christ. That considerable numbers of people here are engaged in holy activities for God, there can be no doubt. But that many others are simply sanctified sponges. I didn't say that, he did. Sanctified sponges that imbib all that they can possibly receive, having no proper concept of their duty to distribute the benefits and the blessings of this gospel to a lost and dying world. It is a fact of which a careful observer is likely to be sadly convinced. And what is the case here? It is true in all Christian congregations the world over. The major part of those who confess Christ as Savior have never yet awakened to the fact that He is their Lord also, master of their lives, that He owns their purses, their properties, their possessions, and that He owns their hands and their feet and their ears and their eyes that they are His and that their children are His and that their homes are His and that their businesses are His and that their treasures are His and that all that they have they hold as His stewards and His trustees, that they owe a debt to a dying world that they can never pay, however diligent that they may be, but that they are also trustees put in trust with the gospel as the only riches by which that debt can ever even in part be discharged. Was he not right on? I mean, did this guy not have a handle on what was happening? Sure he did. And it was happening way back there in 1893. What does it tell you? It tells you that human nature is the same year after year, century after century. But that does not excuse us. That does not make it so that you and I can sit back on our laurels and say, hey, we've completed 23 years, man, and we've got these buildings, we've got this property, and man alive, we're debt-free, everything's hunky-dory, we support missionaries, we give the faith promise. What else can you expect? I'll tell you. He put us here because this city, this county, this country, this world needed the New Life Baptist Church. If it was not God's will for there to be a church here, I can assure you with all it went through, it would have never survived. And I believe God allows churches to dissipate because of their not fulfilling their responsibilities and discharging their obligation to His calling. I believe their churches die. By the way, in the United States of America, hundreds of churches die out every single day in this country. Some of them, to God be the glory, they died. They didn't preach the truth. They did not stand for the Word of God. They did not do the things they should have done that God left them here to do. And it's a wonderful thing that they're gone. And I do not mean that unkindly. But they spread heresy and false teaching that absolutely was uh, uh, atrocious against the things of the Lord. But I say on the other hand, sometimes good churches die away because the people who should stand firm don't do so. And the same people who should stand firm and don't, neither do they help them reach out so they're not standing still. I ask you, you see, what part, if you're a member of the New Life Baptist Church, and by the way, if you aren't and, and you are a saved, baptized believer, you ought to be. You ought to get yourself in a church where you can stand with people and help those people and make that church better. You see, we can be better, but we need everybody's help to be better. If you'll help us, we can be better, but we need your help. 
Uh, well, I don't mind your criticism. I've often said and believe it to be true. If a pastor can't take criticism, if the heat's too hot in the kitchen, he ought not be cooking. And I believe that's a ministry responsibility. Take the heat. Take the criticism. And we can take it. I mean with that. We have, I have lots of room for criticism. But let me tell you what we really need. Is we need somebody to say, I see a problem here, what we could do better. And you just start rolling up your sleeves and say, I'll help you get it done, buddy. Point me in the direction. What is it you want done? And let us get it done. I say that to you to say this. You see, I'm reminded of what Paul said. Let me ask you to look at it because I think it's important. Sometimes we take it for granted. It's the passage he wrote to Timothy. Young, timid Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verses 1 through 6. 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter number 2, 1 through 6. 2 Timothy chapter 2, 1 through 6. Carefully note, he said, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Verse 4, 2 Timothy chapter 2, No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may, be, we, he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. Verse 5, And if a man also strive for masteries, yet is he not crowned except he strive lawfully. Verse 6, The husbandman that, labor, that laboreth must first partaker of the fruits. What this passage of Scripture says, and says a lot about a lot of things, when I think about our situation, I think about it as a view of how God sees believers. And there's more that could be said in the text as a whole, but in these few verses, in verses 1 through 6, I want you to see what God sees when He sees you. His ideal of looking at you would be the first thing in, in how He views you and what the characteristic of that view is, is something that will help you understand what is expected of you. For instance, in verse number 1, He says, Thou therefore, my son. Obviously, Paul was talking to Timothy, but in a broader sense of the word, it's under inspiration of God. So God is saying, My son, who is this? Well, a son, daughter in the faith, is those people who've come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So my son, the first characteristic then is relationship. What's the most important thing around the New Life Baptist Church? That every member have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. No if and, or buts about it, but that you know Jesus Christ as Savior. If you're not saved by the grace of God, you ought not join a church. You ought to come to faith in Christ first. But once you have that faith in Christ, following the Lord and believers, baptism to identify with Him, not to solidify your salvation, but to identify with Christ and commit yourself long term to Him as one of His followers. And then join the ranks of a group of believers, of fellow believers, so you can be a part of a local church, so you can get involved and put on the whole armor of God to go out to the battle that's raging in that context. So the first thing is a son. That's the way he views you. And the key characteristic is relationship. How is your relationship to your Heavenly Father? Are you like the son that was in the New Testament, the story where the father came to the son and said, Son, I want you to go out to the field today and serve and work. And the son said, I'm not going and he may have said it was too hot. He may have said it was too far. He may have said that the harvest was too far gone. He, he just didn't want to go. I don't know what he was thinking, and I don't know what he said, but the Bible says that, in fact, he repented later, and he went. The Bible holds him up and says, this is good. Bad that he did what he did in the beginning, but it's good that this is the way that a son does it. He does what his father commands him to do. Not like the other son who said, I'll go, Father, and then didn't. They condemn him in the text. What's the point? If you're a son, let me tell you something. You've been commissioned. Go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. There's no getting around it. 
You have family members that are not saved. You know who the first group of people are going to be responsible for them when you stand before the Lord? You are. Because you got the truth. You know Christ as Savior. You have entrusted to you the great treasure of the gospel. And you say, well, I've shared it and they haven't accepted it. May I tell you, I don't know many people who did first time they heard it. So it doesn't let you off the hook to say, I've done that. The question is, have they come to faith in Christ? As long as they're not saved, your obligation is to keep sharing. It's the Holy Spirit's work to convict and to bring about an understanding of the need. But your responsibility as in relationship to the Father is a son to go to the field. And the field is the world. And the gospel is the thing with which we've been given to work. That second thing in the text, notice if you would, in verse number 3 comes down to saying that thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier. Characteristic here is endurance. Endure hardness. Enduring hardness and the ideal of hanging in there when things are not going well or they're not going my way. It's, a, it's staying at your post even when it's tough, when it's hard, when it's one of the things you'd rather switch than do, you know. Let me tell you, it's one of those things in being a soldier. It'd be easy to change sides if you saw your side lose. I'm shocked and amazed and thrilled and honored of the American servicemen and women in Iraq with all the defeated kind of presentations we get in that place, and now at least or over 1,000 of them who have been killed and they haven't all deserted. I'm impressed. A 1,000 of our young people killed over there, and we still got soldiers who will fight to the death. Isn't that impressive? Man, if we had that as the tenacity in our hearts as believers, soldiers, we never would give up. You got a hard case in your family of someone who just won't give in, won't trust Christ to save you. You wouldn't quit and you wouldn't give trading aside. You'd stand as the ground and stay by the post and keep giving out the gospel. But some of us have gone to sleep. And we're not doing it. There's a third characteristic and a third character. It's in verse 5. He says, If man strive for masteries, yet is not crowned, except he strive lawfully. That is the athlete in this text. You are viewed as an athlete. And what the characteristic that sets forth here is very clearly single-mindedness. You know what is required of you in order to finish this race, and you know where the finish line is. That's single-mindedness. You'll forgive me, but some of you have missed that. You're not single-minded. You thought the race had already been run and quit and done, and you've already stopped. You're waiting for the trophies to be handed out at the American banquet. i got news for you. We're not home yet. We've not crossed the finish line, and the race is still heated. And you and I have an obligation to keep running until he says it's finished. When he says and drops the checkered flag and say, You're home, buddy. Rest. Enter into the joys of the Lord. I say to you, some of you already quit on me. Some of you have already quit on us. And the race isn't finished yet. The finish line's not even in sight for some of us yet. But we've already quit. We don't give out tracts. We don't invite people to church. We don't pray daily for the services, for the work of the ministry here. We don't necessarily do all the things that it takes to make an operation like this function the way it does. And oh, that you could somehow get on the inside for just a while and understand the big picture operation of the New Life Baptist Church. It's more than Sunday morning, and it's more than Sunday night, and it's more than Wednesday night, and it's more than a business meeting. There's a whole lot more happens in here than you'd ever dream. And it takes people 
People like you and me who stand by the stuff and keep our eyes on the finish line but keep running the race. There's a fourth one. It's in verse number 6. He gives us this view. He says, The husbandman, that's a farmer, that laboreth must first be partaker of the fruits. Whenever you think of a farmer, you ought to think of hard work. Because that's the implied point here. A man who works so hard has the first rights to the fruit that he produces. And that's exactly the point. Hard working. A characteristic of a farmer is hard work. But interestingly enough, it applies to you and I spiritually. You see, you continue your labor as a farmer. Listen now. Until the harvest is in the barn or the silo. It'd be a shame for a farmer to go all the planting and see it all grow and then say, hey, I've done my job. I'm not going out and harvest that crazy stuff. I mean, good grief. Have you ever been out in a bean field when you start harvesting? If you can find the tractor, you're doing well. The dust clouds and all the stuff that's flying everywhere. I live uh, with Mr. Dittmar. His property is next to my property out on Park Drive. And I met Mr. Dittmar a few weeks ago and talked with him about the field. And he has a beautiful field of um, beans that he leases to a man and we were talking about his farm and talking about his teaching in school and and uh, those things and and uh, strangely enough i never met the man in my life and yet he said to me he said you still have that spanish ministry at your church now i don't know where that man attends but he knew about our ministry here at the church in the spanish and uh interesting conversation with him but we got to talking about that field and and he said now this is going to get dusty when we get this i said you don't have to tell me anything I came with about a year ago when the dust came in. Boy, I'm telling you, covered everything from that bean field. The dust is so horrendous. It would be a temptation to me, if I were a farmer, I guess, to say, hey, I'm not doing that. That's too dirty. I mean, that's dusty. I mean, that thing will clog up all your lungs. You'll be spitting dust for a month. I'm not going to do that. But if you don't, you won't get the beans in the barn. You won't have a harvest, and you might go broke. My point? It's easy for us to quit early. I don't care how hard it has been. And it has been tough on a lot of people around the New Life Baptist Church over the years. But I am telling you, the job of a farmer is not done until the harvest is in the barn. And we're not there yet. We're not there yet. There is more that must be done, that has to be done, and you and I are part of it. I'm going to skip a lot of my sermon. It's time to quit. But the fact of the matter is, when the Scripture set forth and set forth in very clear presentation, Paul wrote it to the church at Corinth. He wrote these words. He said, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you be ignorant. In verse 7 he said, But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit withal. And then in verse 11 of chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians he said, But all these worketh that one and the self-same Spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. Taking those three verses together, it's very obvious that one, every saved, born-again person has a gift that God has given for you to serve and use in His church. That's an obvious one. And number two, it is obvious that the Spirit of the Lord gave it to you so you could make it profitable or He could make it profitable to the whole fellowship. We would all benefit from it. The problem here is this. If you've gone to sleep... Your gift is setting idle. It may be on a shelf or it may not be doing anything. It may be just gathering dust. His point is, if I gave you a gift, I gave it to you so you could use it. And you could minister it. And it would be a benefit to the church. The word profit here is literally to get, get great gain, to make much benefit to these people. But if you've gone to sleep, you're not using it. You're cheating me. You're cheating people in this auditorium. What gift do you have that you're not using that you are asleep in 
not discharging. We're missing that one. And who knows? Only the Holy Spirit of God would know. Who knows but what that might be the one gift that would set the flame of burning in the hearts of other people around you and might stir up more people than you've ever dreamed could be stirred just because you outused your gift. My point about it is if he didn't intend, if he had no intent for us to be serving him while we are here on this earth, why would he have given gifts for specifically the purpose of that? It didn't make sense. You see, his intent was to use you and use me. And the idea was that by all stretches of the imagination, it was my responsibility as yours to utilize those. When I was a young boy in the Presbyterian Church, we sang a song that's in this hymn book too. It was the song that's on page 296, and I never could get past verse 3 because it stuck in my craw like a, I tell you, it's like somebody had eaten a long gutter nail, you know, and got it hung up at the curve. It just wouldn't go down. And every time we'd get to verse 3, it bothered me as a young boy. And I can say even to this day, it troubles me. Not troubles me in the sense of any fear about the future, but troubles me in the fact of my concern about what I've accomplished in my lifetime. I'm getting to an age where I'm looking at my heritage and my legacy and what do you leave behind when you leave all this? What have you done? In page 296, softly and tenderly, the third verse says, Time is now fleeting. The moments are passing. Passing from you and from me. Shadows are gathering. Deathbeds are coming. They're coming for you and they're coming for me. And then there's the other song, and it's in this songbook that was sung, or at least in our church, we sang it to a different tune when I was a young boy. But it's the same truth. It's page 395 in this book. And it simply goes thus. Listen carefully. Must I go and empty-handed? Thus my dear Redeemer meet. Not one day of service given lay no trophy at his feet not at death I shrink nor falter for my savior saves me now he means I'm not scared to die that's not the problem here so not at death I shrink nor falter for my savior saves me now it's a present salvation he's not fearing death but to meet him empty handed thought of that now clouds my brow all the years in sinning wasted could I but recall them now I would give them to my Savior to his will I'd gladly bow O ye saints arouse be earnest up and work while yet tis day ere the night of death o'ertake thee strive for souls while still you may and in the chorus must I go and empty-handed must I meet my Savior so not one soul with which to greet him must I empty-handed go I say this to you my beloved it is easy to be a sleeping saint it's easy because of the security that we have in Jesus Christ I could go to sleep tonight and if I pass out and go out into eternity uh, I can assure you that I died peacefully, happily, and secure, and confident that to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. 
And sometimes that security sort of carries itself over into our day-to-day activities. And we get so secure in our faith in Christ that we think we don't need to do anything. But let me tell you something. He left you here with purpose. He left you here to do something, to accomplish something. And He not only left you here with that, but the idea was He put His Holy Spirit inside of you to give you the power to accomplish what He gifted you to do. So He gives you a gift and says, Look, if you use this gift, you can honor me and you can encourage the church and you can help it to go forward and you can make sure that it still stands. You can help the community know Christ. There's a whole lot of things that you can do by virtue of the fact that the gift I've given you, it will profit much to my church. I can almost hear him put a prefix or a footnote or a, a post statement at it. But don't go to sleep on me. Don't go to sleep on me. Don't act like you have nothing to do and you have no gift. And don't act like you, you just get up in the morning and you go your routine and you leave me out. Don't, you, don't act like that. I've left you at a post. And I've given you a responsibility. And it should be that on your watch, my will would be accomplished on earth. My beloved, I leave you this, this morning and I hope that you will take it to heart. If the New Life Baptist Church is ever to be all that it ought to be, both pastor and people have got to wake up and realize and recognize we've been left here with purpose. We've been empowered with the Holy Spirit. And we have before us a great door and effectual that's been opened to us. Opportunities like no other generation have ever been open to. With all the technology and the opportunities of out, outreach, we are the greatest generation. But let me tell you, those privileges will also serve to cause us to be more responsible and accountable when we stand before the Lord. Are you a sleeping saint? Are you lethargic? I know the work has gotten hard, and I know that the Scriptures teach not to be weary in well-doing, Galatians 6. I also know it says men ought always to pray and not to faint. I find it interesting that the same Greek word for faint and weary, but we translate it with two different English words because that's what people get. They get faint and weary. And as they get faint and weary, they usually get on the sideline and say, well, let somebody else do it. I've come to you this morning with a plea. I want us to make a greater difference in the future than we've made in the past. If we always do what we've always done, we'll always get what we've always gotten. And I, for one, am not happy with that. I want all the pews filled. I want every service well attended. I want every member of the New Life Baptist Church faithful and committed, not just to the church, but to the Lord Jesus Christ and to living for Him and serving Him. And whatever task you have, I hope you'll do it with all of your heart. And if you're not a member of the New Life Baptist Church, we welcome you here. If you've been saved by the grace of God, been baptized by immersion, and have a vision to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and to unify and serve the Christ we serve with the gift He gave you to do it with. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness, your grace. And thank you for the opportunity you give us to serve you. What a great honor it is. And what a responsibility it is. You have saved us with purpose. And you have called us with purpose. And you have now put within our reach the things that we can do, that we ought to do. And now it's up to us to fulfill and discharge those matters. So this morning I pray for myself and for the congregation of the New Life Baptist Church and for every visitor and friend present this morning. I pray that if there are any of us that are asleep, that we'd wake up, that we'd understand that time is passing, deathbeds are gathering, 
and one day, someday, and maybe today, we will leave this world. And it will be only what we have done for Christ that will last. We'll not take our money with us. We'll not take our possessions with us. We'll not take any of those things with us. It will only be what we have laid up ahead of us in a spiritual way for eternal values that will count in eternity. So I pray today that you'd help us to realign our priorities. I pray that you'll awaken us, you'll shaken us, even to our foundations of who we are, and that we would face the reality of the honest question, what part of this business of us standing still is my responsibility? What can I contribute? What can I do? How can I help? And I pray, Father, that you'll drive that question deep into our hearts and our lives. And may we as a church never be the same. May our next years be better than our last years. And, Father, may our future find us faithfully discharging the commission to which you left us here to fulfill. Help us to be faithful stewards. And then when we see you, may it be said of us as a church and individually within it, well done, thou good and faithful servant. For those who are here without Christ, obviously they can't be servants until they're sons and daughters. And we pray for them. God, speak to their hearts, please, this morning. Help them to know that Christ died for the world, for sinners within it. And Christ has already paid the price. And all they need to do is come in simple childlike faith, believing Him and His finished work. And they can be saved and be sons and daughters. And then move to the high privilege as a servant. Pray for those who ought to come for baptism, those who ought to come for church membership, those who ought to come for prayer, and some who ought to come this morning and deal with their sleepiness, their tiredness, their faintness, their weariness. And I pray, Father, that you would stir our spirits as a church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? Turn to 282 in your hymn book, just as I am without one plea. 282. If God has spoken to your heart, we invite you to come and trust Christ as your Savior this morning. So let me encourage you to think carefully about your relationship to Christ. Do I know Christ? Am I a son of God? Am I a daughter of God? And if you're not, then obviously we encourage you and exhort you to come and allow someone to take a Bible and show you from the Scriptures how you can be saved. But if you are, then how is it with you? Are you asleep on the job? Asleep at the post? Are you a soldier enduring hard times? And are you about to quit because things are just not going the way you thought they should have? How is it with you? Are you a farmer who just hasn't got the grit to go out and face the dust of the crops and therefore you're letting them die in the field? Maybe is that what our Lord says? The fields are already wide unto harvest. Already ready to pick. The ideal is we just don't have people who will pick up and go. How is it with you? Whatever God says to you in obedience to that, please come forward. Let us help you if we can. If we can't and you want to use this front pews as a prayer station, then do it. But don't sit on the truth. Act on it. As we sing, 282 verse 1, together please. Just as I am. God has spoken to your heart, would you come? If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? As we sing the second stanza, you obey the Lord. 
God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? your heads with me please you can close your books and put them back in the rack I'll ask the instruments to play us a verse or two as we wait on the Lord for just a moment how is it with you my friend are you certain are you sure that Christ is your Savior whether a member of the New Life Baptist Church or a visitor or a guest the devil would delight in deceiving us and tricking us into believing we have a relationship with him when in reality there is no relationship so be sure about that. Know for certain, for sure, that Christ died for you on the cross. It's not your work that gets you salvation. It's His finished work. As a believer, are you asleep? What have you done for Christ lately? What are you doing for Him day in and day out? One more verse and we'll close. God has spoken to your heart. Please obey Him. Please obey Him. Father, we thank you so very much for your goodness to each of us, and we thank you for your goodness to the New Life Baptist Church. We are honored to be a part of the ministry and honored to be the pastor of the New Life family. And we realize, Father, that there is so much that we yet need to do. We thank you and we praise you for all the things you've accomplished here, the many people over the years that have been saved, but there are so many more who need be saved. We thank you for all the money that's been given to missions and the projects that we've done. Father, thank you for the over $150,000 that's just been given in faith promise since we started that. Not counting all the money given to the missionaries on a month-to-month basis. Thank you for all of that. Thank you again for our buildings that make the ministry efficient and operative. And thank you, Father, for this auditorium in the basement with those Sunday school rooms and the library downstairs, the nursery. Thank you for the ministry building with the Sunday school classrooms, the mission apartment, and the fellowship hall. Thank you for the office building over the way and the opportunity to be able to meet and greet people and counsel folks and speak with folks and study in a place that's so set aside and dedicated to that cause. Lord, we just thank you for the way that you've raised up on this corner all these things, and we want them to be to your glory. We want you to be honored by them. We want you to impact lives with them. And so we thank you, first of all, for them, and then we ask you to help us to utilize them and use them for your greater glory and ours, the church, greater good. And we ask you, Father, to strengthen our number. Help us to grow numerically. But help us not to bend or bow or give in to the pressures of a, a politically charged society that wants everything on their terms. Help us to live our lives and serve our church and lead our church in a way that always reflects our consistent commitment to full obedience to what the scriptures teach. 
Help us not to vary on our doctrines just to get people. Help us not to compromise our stand on matters that are of importance of holiness. And help us to keep our eyes set on Thee, You, the author and finisher of our faith. Help us to never weary or never vary in our commitment. Bless these who come today and the burden that they've carried here. I pray help them leave. And help them, Father, I pray, to go from this place energized and excited and give them, I pray, a refreshed, clear vision of what they individually could and should do for you.